All right, here we go. Episode 26, and after more than a year away, Leading by the Book is back. And not only is Leading by the Book back, but we have added a compatriot to our mix. And so much so that I think it should not be called Leading by the Book. We're going to deal with that later on. But, but <laughs> our most recent guest is back with us, and that man is Tim Barrett. Yeah, pleasure to be on, I guess. Um, yeah, no, I think, uh, these, these, these things are good. These things are good. Uh, but, uh, we were just talking about, before you press play, we were just talking about, uh, you know, we've got plenty of exposure to the upside. Am I jumping in too soon? Perhaps. Let, let's come, let's come back to that because I think we need to set the table just a little bit. Uh, right. You were on about, uh, I guess a little over a year ago. I think it would have been March of last year. We were a couple months into working together, and we, we went pretty long at the time. We, we talked about pretty much everything there, well, not everything there is, but uh, everything was focused, I should say, on Tim Barrett and the man that is. And over the course uh, of what has been the, the 12 months since then, uh, we've continued to work together. We, we've got our, our paws in all kinds of different things, uh, most significantly of which has been growing the car wash company uh, that we operate. And Tim and I, I guess, I don't know how you would describe what we do. Maybe we'd call it private equity, uh, private equity-ish, um, but really we ultimately look to to acquire and grow companies. And I guess through that, um, you know, our, our, our relationship has, has become very interesting, as, as Joy, my wife, refers to you, my life mate. Um, uh, you, you are in the top three on my, uh, speed dial list. So, uh, suffice to say that, that when, uh, when, when we started about kicking things around about potentially recording stuff together, it was a pretty obvious, uh, end result. And so that has gotten us here. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. I can't believe it's been a year. That's, that's so crazy. Um, it's also, it's also just, uh, crazy that I had to, to beg you for so long to actually have me on your podcast. I just, I just was so excited to actually be on the podcast. That's Fun. You didn't have to beg me. Oh, I, 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 I wallered. <laughs> I don't think I, I was begged. I, I think uh, I'd have been thrilled to. to okay, maybe, maybe I didn't. Maybe I didn't. But leading by the books is a great name. We're not changing the name. Uh, I, th so I think I we're think, gonna I have think, to. I think it's great. Well, then it's gonna be leading by uh, the book maybe. with Tim Barrett. But, yeah, but you, you said you said something, and and you said uh, it's sort of like private equity, and. What I would like to add is is actually is private equity, uh, albeit on a on a you know reasonable scale, uh, smaller scale, uh, without the vampires. See, that's the thing. When I think of like hedge fund managers and private equity guys, I think of like blood sucking vampires, and I just hope we're not that. I don't think we are. Let me guess. You read Barbarians at the Gate. Uh, I've read Barbarians at the Gate among many numerous other things but but yeah for sure you know i for think sure. private equity has changed and you know we, we studied this extensively uh, when, I, when i was in business school but you know you go back to the 80s and i think the vampire description is totally accurate but there does seem to have been a shift at least publicly maybe it's not true behind the scenes but you, you look at some of the titans in private equity you, you look at like steve schwartzman with with blackstone uh, you, you look at David Rubenstein with Carlisle. They do seem to have more of an interest in building businesses 
than than perhaps in the 80s when it was LBO, lever the thing up, you know, and then we get out of here with a fat return and, and this company is basically dumpster fire as we leave. At least I hope that is what has changed. But m- maybe I'm wrong because, you know, we are, we're private equity, but we're sort of a different approach to it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I mean, it's changed, it's changed quite a bit. Um, you know, I just, the, there's, I, I do, I do think there's still remnants of, um, you know, whether or not it's a complete care, carelessness for uh, uh, the company itself, uh, uh, or, or if it's really just in order to produce a return, you know, it's required to streamline a company so incredibly efficiently. I mean, there's just, there's a lot wrong, I think, with, with the markets right now. And, and I think we're experiencing that with COVID-19 and, you know, the, the, the impacts that we've seen in the supply chains and not be able to get certain products because we're operating with, you know, uh, just-in-time inventory and we're operating with the most efficient uh, uh, producer manufacturing, uh, which means it happens overseas. And so when there's, when there's these uh, global pandemics that, frankly, I'm not sure anybody really could have predicted, but apparently Bill Gates did, um, uh, it's 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 very impacting to the companies themselves, and because they do operate so streamlined, and this is the private equity way, uh, they're left compromised, right? So you don't want to have too much cash on your balance sheet because that's a drag on your returns, right? So so nobody nobody really has a bunch of cash on their balance sheet. You don't want to have too much inventory on your balance sheet because just in time inventory, you reduce your working capital needs. Uh, so so we don't do that. Those two things in themselves have created a situation where Americans in general don't just not have uh, an emergency fund, uh, but companies don't have an emergency fund. And the largest companies in the world don't have an emergency fund, meaning they can't operate for a few months if there's a disruption. And I think a lot of that is just a function of, of peacetime that occurred for so long. And while this global pandemic is not necessarily a, a, a war war, uh, it has it has similar dynamics to it. Disruption of supply chains, sell off of assets to meet, uh, you know, capital needs, um, you know, all those kind of things. I also think the activist investor, probably to a lesser degree, but has certainly exacerbated the impact of this. And again, th- this is an unforeseen thing. But when you look at the pressure for a lot of these companies, Apple certainly, when it comes to mind, with pressure for for very large stock buybacks and really, you know, pushing them to at least limit the stockpile of cash that would allow, you know, other companies. A- Apple will, will certainly be fine, but other companies to be able to survive something like this, yeah, you know, that certainly plays into it. You know, coming into this, just you know, to your point about the. The average American. What what is what was the stat? The average American had less than a thousand dollars in savings and couldn't cover a, a four hundred dollar medical payment. I think that was one of the articles it's, I read before this started. It's something. It's something like that. It's something like that. Like they, yeah, they they couldn't cover an emergency that was four hundred dollars or something. You have to look that up. But um, I mean, I think I th- I think it's all. I mean, you know. You know me, but those those listening probably don't. I I just think I think there's we've gotten um, to the end of this this uh, maybe not the end, but close to the end of this debt cycle, 
to where, you know, it doesn't pay, it hasn't paid in generations to accumulate savings. Um, you know, because your your whatever savings that you have gets eroded by inflation. Um, but um, you know, those things seem to be changing. Potentially. Maybe they're changing. Maybe we find another way. Maybe we find another way to kick the can down the road. And and that's what that's really what I'm looking for is is there a way to kick the can down the road um, to create enough um, monetary reserve. Uh, uh, to create enough currency to to keep the game going a little bit longer but you know if you if you look at if you look at the way our money comes into creation it's not so so difficult we just created like almost we created over five trillion dollars between the backstop of fannie and freddie and u.s treasury by that the fed announced that was 700 billion and then they lifted the cap after they spent almost 700 billion a week and then we had the 2.3 trillion dollar cares act stimulus plan and then we had another $2.3 trillion backstop of the bond market that supports municipal bonds and uh, uh, junk bonds. And, uh, you know, so I'm counting $5.3 trillion uh, right there. Am I doing that math right? Yeah, $5.3 trillion. Somewhere in that ballpark. Um, uh, that we're doing right there. It's, it's not difficult to create the currency. The Fed can do that overnight. Um, but but I do think it's difficult to build your way out of a situation that we're currently in because you need a balance sheet sufficient enough to and credit worthy enough to uh, to borrow the capital. And so when you're looking at the run up to 08, you know, it was it was um, U.S. households borrowing for, you know, home purchases and uh, refinancing out their equity to buy boats and second homes and whatever the heck else they wanted, um, right? So that was a big balance sheet that could take on a lot of debt. That that sort of goes, circulates into the economy and, and creates, you know, a, a situation where there's there's plenty of, of currency and expansion. And then, you know, the, the run-up even to, to this point here where, you know, uh, I think COVID-19 was really just, just sort of a catalyst for something that was already going to happen. Run up to twenty was really the, the corporate, um, the corporate balance sheet that took on the debt, you know, with the buybacks and, frankly, even some of the stuff that we do, uh, you could you could classify that into it as well. Um, the use of of leverage to to acquire companies um, creates creates residential capital and, and uh, expansion. I think it does. It is also important to delineate between good debt and bad debt. You know, the, I think you know the the debt that we saw coming into two thousand eight. That was a a much much different type of debt being taken, at least at the personal level. Um, you know, it's one thing. Oh, to for use, sure. It's one thing to use debt to buy assets that generate cash, whether it's a business, whether you're an individual buying rental properties, things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. But but even even beginning, even going into the beginning of a new cycle. The borrower's balance sheet is clean and the debt is good, right? So, so, so starting the run up to 08, right? It was a wise thing to buy a house because that house that you buy appreciates in value and the leverage to begin with was relatively conservative. But um, uh, who is it that talks about um, the, 
the stability of markets creates instability, right? Because what happens over time is, is people look at that and they say, oh, okay, well, you know, homes appreciate by this much each year. So, you know, eventually they get to a point where maybe we don't need 20% down. Maybe we need 10% down. And maybe we don't need 10% down. Maybe we need 5% down. And then maybe we don't need 5% down. Maybe we need uh, uh, no money down, uh, you know, to buy the house. Because, you know, in a year or two, we're going to be in a solid position. Uh, so it's it's sort of, I think I think the difficulty in it is you begin as like a boiled frog where the, where the balance sheet, the credit of the balance sheet, whether it be households or corporations, starts off in a way that's very healthy. And then over time, the lending standards begin to loosen up because you've got this pattern of success mm-hmm. uh, with that type of lending. And so, so in that, the stability creates, creates instability over time to where there's less and less expectation of, uh, of loan, loss, own loan losses. And so you reduce your, your loan loss reserves and, um, and, and then eventually it cracks. You were talking before we started recording about your approach to cash and potentially how that changes because of what we've now learned the, the past month or well, so. Well, yeah. So, right. And, and so I think it's important. I think it's important um, to know, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a doomsdayer, but I do, I do think it's important to hedge. And so I have plenty of exposure to the upside in most of our uh, investment opportunities and they've all performed really well. Um, but I don't have much uh, protection against the downside. So, you know, one of the things I was looking at um, over time was just, you know, how much how much cash should I have, um, you know, in my safe, which sounds like a doomsday thing. But just looking back at history, uh, I looked at two things. The longest bank holiday was actually about a week. And uh, that was in 1946, which a week not that big a deal. Um, you know, nobody's uh, going to, hopefully nobody's going to riot in the streets uh, if banks are closed for a week and you can't get to your cash. But the one that was more concerning, and I think for people who have resources and live off of their investment returns, was uh, the closure that occurred in 1914. Uh, the, the market itself was closed for four months. And what's interesting about it was uh, and I think I was starting to read this uh, to you. I'll read it again because uh, I think I think uh, you know. It's, uh, I thought it was an interesting statement. Apparently, it resonated with you as well. Uh, but it's in this this article, uh, "History of Notable Market Halts" uh, on the street.com. And it said, July thirty first, nineteen fourteen, World War One breaks out, and the New York Stock Exchange is halted for four months. The main cause of the closure is largely credited to foreign investment in domestic assets. When the European conflict took off, many of the countries had large amounts of U.S. securities, which could be sold off to create capital for war. The closure largely prevented the run on the market. I just thought that was interesting, being as one, it was a four-month period. So, So how much capital cash did I have? Well, probably minimum expenses sitting in the safe in case I can't, you know, sell assets or, you know, marketable securities in order to get cash to support my lifestyle. I think that's relevant for, for you know, especially you know, high, high net worth individuals and accredited investors to, to be able to protect against that. Now you can't live in that place. You don't take all your money out 
and throw it all in the safe because then you're not going to get a return and lo and behold, inflation will kick in and the value of that cash sitting yourself in your safe goes, goes to pot. But um, nonetheless, it's, I think you always want to hedge a little bit. A couple things just stick out on that. One, if you are a fan of podcasts and you have never listened to Dan Carlin's hardcore history about uh, the beginning of World War One, it is it's about twenty hours, maybe it's twenty four hours. So be prepared; it's long, but it is a great way if you ever find yourself on a long uh, car trip or in a government induced quarantine, perhaps. <laughs> so it, it it's fantastic. But um, as it relates to to just to the broader idea of cash, um, what scares me the most is not necessarily whether or not we have cash in our safes. And I, th- I think everybody should should always have cash to some degree. Not not you know we're not talking about like all of your money needs to be in cash, but you need to have what what I would call survival cash, and that isn't like you know end of the world you know doomsday type cash, but it's cash to be able to go about your regular activities for a certain period of time. You know, in your safe and readily accessible. But the reason I think that is because, you know, this pandemic has caused us to think about a lot of things in a lot of areas where we're susceptible. And my wife and I were sitting watching uh, television the other night. I shared this with you when it happened because I was all fired up when when I saw it. But uh, there was an Amazon ad that came on. And the ad is essentially showcasing what some would call the connected world and everywhere that Amazon effectively powers our lives. And and they're using Alexa, and it's Alexa, turn on the music, Alexa, turn off the lights, Alexa, close the garage, Alexa, lock the car, Alexa, turn on the car, uh, Alexa, do this, Alexa, do that. And when you think about companies that we rely on, obviously a company like Google comes to mind. But I'm not sure right now there is a company that we have ever relied on to the extent that we rely on Amazon. Because Amazon serves two very distinct gods that we serve, so to speak, or idols that we serve, to to use a better term. Uh, It gets us our stuff, and it gets us here in two days, and it powers effectively the internet. When you look at Amazon Web Services, and when you look at the importance of what that is to effectively every website, seemingly, that we use, if Amazon goes south through some type of, of attack or malware or whatever, we're completely hosed, not not just because we're not getting our stuff, but because the internet, which is the thing that we rely on more than anything else, probably in the course of human history, is going to be gone. It's not just that we're not getting information, we're not communicating. We're not going to have access to banks. We're not going to be able to use our credit cards. All of those things rely most likely uh, on Amazon or, or, or probably similar technologies in some cases. But it just scares me how how there's such a single point of vulnerability with with one company and and that is why I think cash is so important because it all it takes is Amazon web services to 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 go south for the entire system as we know it to to, to be host and you know talking to to different friends of mine in the special operations community it's it's pretty clear that they don't view the the battlefield of the future as you know, like, like we have guys over in Iraq or Afghanistan right now, they, they don't view that as the battlefield. The, the battlefield is twofold, and, and they've been saying this for years. They've talked about uh, bioterrorism, which, you know, so, something like we see right now is is certainly, you know, similar in the sense of what, what it could do. Uh, and then obviously, 
the internet. Those two means leave us insanely vulnerable because it is very, very difficult to, to protect against them. You know, when you're dealing with standard militaries, okay, we're gonna we're gonna shore up our borders. We've got 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 these battlefields. You at least know what you're fighting. When you're dealing with pandemic and when you're dealing with with digital things uh, like like the internet, you have no idea where these attacks come from, and it probably, as we're learning, is not a matter of of if but when. It, it is going. To happen, and, and at some point, there is going to be some major banking or credit outage because of, of a coordinated or concerted attack uh, on the internet, and we're going to be in rough shape when it happens. Well, and in, in, in you know, lest lest people think that we're actual doomsdayers, which is just not the case, because the majority of our assets are in are in risk assets. Uh, the, I think the I think the reality is is that these things have happened in history, and what's crazy is like you can't even bring up the fact that this has happened in the past without being classified as a doomsdayer. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? When when it's, it would actually be really prudent for everybody to have you know a little bit of resources set aside, some savings, you know, <laughs> set aside to be able to weather these sort of things. Uh, it's but it's just. I just noticed that, uh, you know, as soon as you start mentioning um, anything like that, all of a sudden you're a doomsdayer and you're you're preaching societal collapse. It's not that at all. Like when this happened in 1914 and they shut down the the market for four months, it wasn't societal collapse. It, it was it was you know the the world carried on. The country got through. Um, you know we're not we're not uh, you know some post-apocalyptic uh, country at this point. Uh, but nonetheless, these things do happen, and I think it's important that we're prepared for them. I would be remiss if I didn't interject here um, and, and tell a quick little story. So uh, as you guys know, Tim and I run a car wash company. Um, and every Friday, Tim and I send uh, an audio note out to the company discussing the goings-on of the company, different, different things that might be attack- or affecting the company. And you know, obviously, right now, COVID is, is certainly something that's affecting the company. So we're talking about that. And we had a good five- or six-minute debate today. Or I shouldn't say debate. It was more of a discussion about the difference between the zombie apocalypse and alien invasion. And so... <laughs> <laughs> we're sitting here saying we're not post-apocalyptic, although we have discussed it. And, and here's the deal. You know, Noah built the ark before the storm. We're not saying we want it to happen, but sometimes, whether it's cash in your safe or uh, other plans, probably good just, just to be prepared. I think that's always going to be prudent advice. Yeah, right. And, and you know, so uh, I always think of things in terms of, okay, worst case scenario happens. What do I want to have? on hand. Well, I want to have some cash. I want to have a little bit of resources available, maybe have some, some silver, some gold, some jewelry, some Bitcoin, you know, stuff like that. Just, just a little bit, you know, to, to, to have on hand. And if the worst case scenario doesn't happen, so what? So what? You know, it, it's, it's, only, it's only a decision of either or if it's your last dollar. If you have enough resources, eventually you pull some off the table you set it aside, you know, who, who, were you and I the ones talking about the, um, I don't know, I would have to find this article, but the, the, uh, there was a, I think it was an article about the, the highest number 
of private jets flying into like Montana or something like that because all the billionaires were going to their ranches. Yeah. Were we talking about that? I think we discussed it, 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 it. Yeah. Even even they, we they all we all do it at scale. I mean, figure out where we're at, right? So where I'm at, I'm, I I can't afford a ranch, um, you know, but but I can prepare a little bit, you know. So put some gold, some silver, silver, some cash in my safe. It's not I don't have everything invested in it because you don't go when you're investing. You don't go all in on any side of something. As soon as you're all in. You're all in. You're screwed. If it doesn't go your direction, you're in real trouble. Um, um, but even even the billionaires do do it at, at their scale, right? So they have a ranch that you know probably produces steer and uh, you know farms and the things of that sort. Um, in fact, I think that was one of Warren Buffett's first uh, investments. It was, he wasn't it in Nebraska? When, I think it was yeah, a ranch he in Nebraska. Said he made it. He bought a he bought a ranch in Nebraska, and I think it just makes sense, right? Worst case scenario, you have a ranch in Nebraska. Hopefully, it keeps up with inflation. <laughs> Hopefully, it's a place for your family to enjoy. And uh, worst case scenario, you can you can produce your own food, and do what I like to call domestic investment. You're diversifying your preparedness portfolio. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But instead, like I just, I guess what I'm pushing back against is, is the, the the population in the country that is so committed to the continuance of the same trends that they're blind to any other changes coming, or possibilities coming. Not just blind, but totally resistant to it. But what I don't get to your earlier point is, what's the downside? Exactly. Okay. You know, so so I'm so I'm prepared for something, and and it never happens. Okay, cool. It am I? You know, is it causing me to miss out on something, or is it negatively impacting my life in some other way? I, probably not. But I would rather have the the peace and the comfort and the security of knowing I've at least got some semblance of a plan and preparedness, rather than just saying, "Oh my gosh, the world's ending. What do I do? I better go stock up on toilet paper." <laughs> yes, and that's exactly what happened. And what was scary about this, and I'm, I'm, re- I'm sort of repeating myself now, is is like it means people didn't have uh, three months worth of toilet paper in their house. Uh, stores didn't have three months uh, worth of toilet paper in their inventory, and they could it it couldn't we couldn't get it we couldn't get it like this is just so bizarre what a bizarre world that we're running that thin. We, we just always have to examine the things that we are dependent upon to take it for granted. You know, the idea that I can run to CVS or Target or Costco and pick up toilet paper is something that, that has caused us, to your point, be sort of a just-in-time culture. And that's not necessarily bad. Now, that said, I don't think... And in fact, if anybody knows anybody that has run out of toilet paper during this entire thing, I'd like to meet them. I think that we should do some type of Dateline profile on that person because I, you know, that's... Patient zero for running out of toilet paper. I, I don't think anybody actually has. Um, I am curious, though, what what you guys as a family did because um, you know y- you and I started talking about it. It was actually you. You know, you know, we knew about COVID. It was it was this this outbreak that that we were seeing in Asia, and you know, we we're sort of paying attention to it. But and I remember sitting around the office, we were saying, you know, you know, what is this thing? Is this you know because of where it was coming out of Wuhan? We're thinking. You know, is this a real thing? Was this like a bio terror experiment gone wrong? What's what? What exactly is this? You know, we debated it the way we debate things all the time, 
And then suddenly it actually, you know who who really started it in in the U.S. at least from an awareness and maybe even a hysteria perspective was Tim Ferriss, because South by Southwest was slated to happen, and Ferriss made a very public statement about um, uh, about how he was not going to go to South by Southwest. There were too many uh, folks traveling internationally and too too high a propensity for risk. And then I actually just found out this morning. Um, in mid-February, Ferris apparently was very scared of coronavirus and dumped the majority of his stock and equity positions uh, as a result of that. Um, I don't think it was all huh. of them, um, but but he, he sold off pretty heavily in February. Um, but I think people started to see his response coming into South by Southwest, and then you know all of a sudden it was, oh, well, this conference is canceled now, and then this conference is canceled, and... Then it was the NBA season's canceled, and now Major League Baseball's postponed spring training, and now hockey's canceled, and and it sort of started to to pick up this steam, almost to the point that at some point we don't we don't understand if you know all of the reactions or all of the actions I should say that are taken are based out of prudence for this or if they're they're hysteria driven. We we don't know, um, but. You know, obviously, there's a lot to be discussed about the models and how accurate some of those models are anyway, but you know, it, it sort of just happened so quickly because for, for a month or two, we knew about this. And then in the span of maybe, I'm going to say eight to 10 days, it went from you and, uh, you, you and I sitting in a room saying, okay, well, we need to, you know, we, we need to brief our, our staff on, on COVID. And then the next day it was, everybody's got to be gloved and masked. And then it was... Yep. And then, it, like three or four it days happened. later, it was shelter in place. California shut down. Our stores are closed. Like, well, oh, <laughs> this happened really quickly. And yeah. I'm curious during that whole time, you know, because nobody, it was happening, but it was almost surreal. Everybody's just looking at the news, like, oh, wow, this is happening. But then, like, you know, we we live in Arizona, which is you know, you know, this insanely beautiful place, at least when it's not 120 degrees. And you go outside, and it's 75 degrees, and people are riding bikes, and kids are playing basketball, but. There's this pandemic going on, and the stores like Costco, you know, five minutes from my house, they don't have toilet paper and they don't have meat, and and I'm it was this weird kind of kind of juxtaposition of worlds where we live in this insanely well manicured nice world, but then I'm like it can't be that bad, and I go to the grocery store to get literally I went to the grocery store stupidly one night to get milk. I'm like oh, I'm I'm just gonna go <laughs> grab some milk. The kids are asleep, um, you know they're out of milk, and I walk in there. And it was like a, it was like a zombie apocalypse movie. Everything is picked over. People are pushing and arguing, and I'm I'm literally seeing people like there's one item of something left, and they're having a tug of war over it. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And then I was like, well, okay, I am. I mean, I'm 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 prepared for this stuff to an extent. Like I always feel like, all right, two months for me is good. So if I have cash and food at least to survive and and other things for two months, I'm going to be good to go. But I was like, is this going to be much worse? Like what, 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 what is going on? And so that that made me focus on what I had. But for you as a Barrett family, what did you guys do any differently once this thing started to to gain traction? Well, I think you, I think you kind of know a little bit of our story. And frankly, I, I was not, I was not paying attention to this uh, until um, uh, the NBA canceled uh, uh, the draft, and the, you know, the Final Four was canceled, and uh, you know, all that stuff started to happen. I, I wasn't, I wasn't really paying attention to it. But, but, 
but it did happen right before my kids spring break. And the day before we were supposed to leave, we went to Mexico. The day before we were supposed to leave, uh, the president uh, suspended uh, flights from Europe for non-citizens. And so I'm like, that's odd. Um, but, you know, it doesn't look like there's any cases down, down in Mexico. Um, I'm pretty sure I can get back across the border because I'm not flying. We, we actually drove. So I wasn't that worried about it. Drove down there. But at that point was when I started started researching what was going on and that's when i called you and had that conversation and and that's when we decided to say okay we need to start looking at this um you know there's a potential that we could have stores shut down uh and then it just all started spiraling spiraling it was it was very very uh unique so i think you were a little bit ahead of me but um Nonetheless, I'm I'm a, I'm a lowly uh, car wash operator. I wasn't paying attention to some some virus in China. Um, I just didn't expect it. You know, the the thing that I think is is the most unexpected with this is not actually the pandemic itself. You know, I th- it, for some reason it doesn't surprise me. Maybe for some it does, but for me, I was like, you know, at some point there's going to be some sickness outbreak outbreak or whatever. You know, whether it's TB or who who knows what's going like something's going to happen. That that's fine. But I don't think any of us ever really grasped what what would happen if there was an outbreak. And for us sitting there talking, you know, we have, what do we have, nine stores in the state of California, I think. Mm-hmm. And just to say, oh, yeah, the, the state's going to shut down business. And then at the time, like, wait a minute, they're going to shut this down? And you think, what are they going to do, just like, shut this down for a couple days and you know this too shall pass and then then you know we're talking about it, it's like no nobody knows you know, i'm just going back three weeks now like we didn't we didn't know and so you know we're on the phone like all day every day dealing with this and it's like okay well california said we got to shut down and we're like okay well you know today's well, i'm making up a day I say it was like sunday we're like okay well you know ho- hopefully you know by friday you know things will be back and just how naive we were you never can contemplate that the government is going to shut down business and tell you that you cannot leave your home for months on end. That was something that was so yeah. unimaginable for all of us. And, and like that, that the reaction is more unimaginable than the pandemic was for us. I think. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, while I wasn't paying attention to the bus, um, you know, I was watching the yield curve late last year as it. It just, I think, it, I think it only turned negative. The yield curve inverted uh, just very, very briefly, um, and so you know, just in watching that, I was expecting something, but not, not this. Um, frankly, not this soon. And I think, I think what that, uh, what that taught me was, was just to pay better attention in the future when, when that occurs. Because in, so I think really it, it comes down to, I think, I think you either think this is, you know, the economy shut down and the market has, has uh, gone, you know, basically gotten battered uh, because, the, because of the virus. Or you think, no, there was actually something coming beforehand with, you know, the feds, um, the feds stepping into the repo market. 
uh, late in 2019, um, you know, the yield curve inversion late in 2019, and, and that the virus was just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And frankly, I'm in the latter camp. Um, you know, not everybody is. There's many people that are that think this comes comes back, although they seem to be waning uh, in terms of how fast they think it comes back. I see. I see no chance this comes back you know, in in any reasonable period of time after that. I just, I just, uh, I just don't get the it. the economy. Yeah. Yeah, we keep yeah, saying, oh, when we're back, or you know, when, when this is done and things get back to normal. There is no normal at this point, not for a few years, at least. Yeah, we just, I mean, we just had another 5.2 million unemployment claims. I think that puts us somewhere in the 20, 22 million unemployment claims in the last two or three weeks. No, not two weeks, three, three or four weeks. Um, it's just massive. It's massive. Well, think about this, I think too. in terms of... Well, th- think about this. So in, you know, this thing happened in March. I'm going to say like March 15th. Let's pick an arbitrary date and say this is when this really, really picked up. So from March 15th, just two weeks to April 1st, because of that, 35% of Americans didn't pay their rent. Okay. That, that was just two weeks. What's going to happen when there's an entire month of impact and the savings are cashed out going into May 1st? I don't, it, th- this has to get much worse before it gets better. Yeah, that's right. And that's one thing that we're looking at. I mean, I have other other investments in, you know, multifamily um, apartments and things of that sort, mostly value add kind of stuff. And we're very concerned about about our vacancy exposure. Um, you know, we were watching April rents come in very closely and they weren't they weren't bad. We've got some impact. People claiming they've been impacted by COVID. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll see, you know, it could be could be May before we start to see any any impact. I don't think we'll have any clarity as to whether or not this is going to affect us, probably until sometime in May or even June. And then from that, from from the perspective of those investments, you know, how do I we before all this, we were we were looking to buy another buy another building and, and um actually we're in a 1031 exchange. And um we decided to to collapse that exchange because there's just no clarity, right? Because you even if you open up the economy back up, you got to wonder, you know, are people still going to be wanting to pay premium rents for renovated apartment units? Are um, you know are those twenty some odd million people that have been uh, furloughed or laid off and and are collecting unemployment are they going to find new jobs very quickly? Right. If they don't have jobs, are they going to be spending money? I don't know. Um, you, you know, so the economic impact, I think, will take some time to really play out to get some clarity. At this point, you know, everyone, in my mind at least, everyone that's asserting that this is something that's going to turn around relatively quickly, um, it's sort of, they're sort of guessing. And I guess I'm guessing too. Uh, but I think, I think that, I think that when there's opportunity, um, you you see it, uh, you see the opportunity, and it's generally pretty obvious. And I just I just don't think this is a time to get very aggressive. So it, it will be an interesting discussion. Point. We should circle back to this in a little bit about where there might be opportunity coming out of this because we we've talked about that extensively. But to your point about 
individuals more broadly. There's a couple things I'm that well, one thing I, I actually feel that I know with a lot of certainty, and then the other is just about a little bit of a question on them. But first and foremost, and you you pointed out, are people going to be able to find jobs? I don't think so. And the reason I say that uh, is, is partly because because of my past life and my past life. I did um, I did a very large scale restructuring for a Fortune 100 company and. We laid off a lot of people, um, not because we wanted to, not because we were evil corporate raiders, but because it was the only way for the company to survive. But what we found is that the conventional wisdom about the productivity of the workforce does not necessarily hold. And what I mean is when we let, would lay off uh, large numbers of people, we would see very little, if any, negative ramification of that to to the company. We wouldn't see an increase uh, in, in the, the, the rate of decline for whether, whether it was revenue or profitability or whatever. And I think as, a, as an economy, we have perhaps overstated, well, this isn't fair. I, mean, I was going to say we've overstated um, the productivity of our workforce. And, and it's probably not, not fair to say that. But I think what we have understated is our ability for businesses to do as much, at least, with less. And I have a, I have a strong suspicion that, well, you're going to see businesses hurting because of, of revenue declines and things like that, because there are a few people in the market. You're not going to see any decline in business related to having fewer people. And as, as and hope, this is a big as, but as... There be, as we start to come out of COVID and we see more money in the economy and we see more spending and we see businesses start to, to increase their revenue, I don't think that they're necessarily going to accelerate that by hiring people back. I, I just don't think so. And um, having seen this firsthand, there's not necessarily a link between people and the ability to grow your business. And I think businesses are going to be forced to learn during this time how to be, or I should say, do the same with less so for people to say, oh, well, the sanction, not the sanctions, but the, the shelter-in-place orders are going to lift and people are going to get hired back, I don't think it works that way. I really don't. And that plays into my next question here, just individually, how does behavior shift individually as a result of this? And you know, We're part of this, uh, Tim, Tim calls it a cult. I'm going to say men's group. But we meet every every Wednesday morning, and we talk about a lot of different things, um, generally faith based uh, topics. But we, we branch off in a lot of things, you know, impacting the macro economy, things like that. And one of the big topics yesterday was just how this has forced us to one reevaluate our priorities in life. I think people are enjoying time with their families more; um, they're enjoying sitting down and having dinner, things like that. But you know, also the, the crowd that, that we run in, you have some people that are, I would say, very, very affluent. Um, in fact, you know, by, by the world standards, everybody in that group is very affluent. But I think you're going to see people that suddenly realize, I might not need that house. I might not need that car. I might not need those clothes. You're going to see a shift to people living more simply because I think they're realizing how vulnerable they are when something like this happens. And it just has to have a negative negative impact on the growth of the economy coming out of this. Because, you know, the, the barometer that we used for how we spend coming into this is not going to be at the same level coming out. 
know, what we consider people doing discretionary spending, it's not going to be the same discretionary spending coming out because there's just not going to be the desire there because we've now learned what can happen. So to say when we come back from this, I think is, is a really, really big stretch because we're not going to come back from this. We're just going to evolve into potentially a different society as a result. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, I think, you know, that was, it was an interesting discussion that we, that we'd had. And, and there was this, this sense that, you know, a lot of people didn't want to be so rat racy and we're noticing, you know, well, I just felt like we're in a pressure cooker to keep go, 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 go. And you want to be productive. Yes. But like busyness and productivity are two different things. And it's important uh, to pay attention to those things. It's hard when, when everything's, you know, the economy really is firing on all cylinders and, and everybody wants to keep up. The other thing that was interesting about that uh, conversation is we talked a little bit about how, you know, everyone's in this phase where right now it's okay to fail. It's okay to be struggling. And that's almost relieving to where, you know, when things are booming, uh, everyone's worried, oh, I'm going to be the one left behind. You know, my business isn't, isn't succeeding as much as that guy's business and I'm not keeping up with my competitors. And, and, you know, there's, there's a, there's an anxiety that comes from that, from that, that rat race, uh, that, uh, that we're really running. But, uh, you know, I do think, I do think it'll be interesting to see how long we can all hold our, 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 our own personal austerity, uh, in place to, um, uh, and, and, and I think that will affect it. What's, what's, it's, it's almost a shame because the, the thing the economy needs is for us to spend money quickly, right? So that, so that money starts circulating. Uh, but the thing each one of us needs is to be able to protect ourselves from the downside. Um, so fortunately, you know, in this cycle, um, you know, the, 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 the Fed has been very liberal in their balance sheet creation, you know, going back to, um, you know, 08, right before, you know, August of 08, you know, the Fed's balance sheet was about $900 billion and it shot up overnight. Um, you know, by November, it was, it was 2 trillion and it didn't get, it didn't grow. And it grew over time through, you know, 2014 up to about four and a half trillion before starting to taper, uh, you know, in um, late 2018 and into 2019. And then we started having problems around, you know, August, September of 2019. But what's interesting is the growth. So we have grown, and this is just what's recorded through April 8th. I'm looking at the chart right now. You know, the Fed's balance sheet as of, um, go a little further. As of March second, was four point two trillion, and as of um, as of uh, April sixth, it was six point one trillion. So we grew by, by the Fed grew its balance sheet by two trillion dollars in a month. It took the Fed uh, looks like about four years to grow its balance sheet by the same amount. In, during the downturn of 08. So they've moved very quickly, I think, which is, is, is encouraging, but that's, that's only encouraging to me from a perspective of kicking the can down the road because it doesn't actually solve the problem. There's a really interesting book that I'm reading right now. 
I'm just in the middle of that. Um, it's called uh, the price of tomorrow. And I think I read this quote to you, Chris. Uh, yeah, I think, I, think I get tomorrow. a call every day with a quote from this book. Oh, it's a great book. You're it's, loving it's very it. Yeah. Interesting because I think, I think the world is changing right now. Anyway, it says in 2000, the total debt in the world was approximately 62 trillion. At the same time, the world economy was about 33.5 trillion. Since 2000, the world economy has grown from 33.5 trillion to 80 trillion. But to achieve that growth, total debt has grown to over 247 trillion as of the third quarter of 2018. According to the Institute of International Finance, in other words, it's taken approximately $185 trillion of global debt to achieve $46 trillion of global growth. And you know, his point, he goes on to say why it's going to be even worse this, this next time, um, uh, which we're, which we're kind of in right now but but as as it as as the debt gets bigger and bigger and bigger it takes even more debt to uh stimulate the economy in the same way uh because of the scale of it and so you know just looking at what the fed had to do to get us out of 08 i mean i'm, I'm guessing and i'm no professional um, you know economist or anything but it, you know they had to go from from uh, uh, about a trillion dollars to four trillion, over four trillion dollars. So I think their balance sheet four x. You know, to, to have the same effect, we're going to have to go from four trillion dollars to sixteen trillion dollars to get us out of this. And I think we're we're well on our way with just the the five point three trillion that's already been that's already been uh, discussed. Now I expect there. I think what makes the most sense is for there to be. Uh, and the president's already posturing this way is there to be a massive infrastructure bill uh, to come and take care of all the infrastructure in the United States, as well as uh, a massive um, uh, spending for bringing especially critical manufacturing home, if not, if not most or all of it. I, th I think that'll be interesting to see, see, see in the second term, you know, pre presuming uh, he gets reelected. And my hunch tells me that he probably will just, based on all this. But one of the things that I saw posted this morning from one of the members of our Wednesday group is around jobless claims. So if you include today's forecast, and we're recording this on Thursday the 16th, today's forecast for jobless claims, the last month of jobless claims will total 22 and change, 22 million and change, which is almost identical to the number of jobs that have been created since the recession of 08. Wow. Yeah, yeah, we basically erased all the quote-unquote progress we made. That is really sobering. Oh, it is, yeah. And I mean, I, and I, I've already said this, but I, I really think it's a, I think the debt's a problem. Not, it's not the creation of the debt. That's easy. It's, it's the balance sheet that can take on the debt you need a larger and larger and larger and larger and larger balance sheet and so we've exhausted households we've exhausted corporate uh debt i do see an opportunity with sovereign debt uh to be able to take on take on sufficient enough um capital to make it work and, and i i think if we had and let's just be crazy. If we had a $10 trillion infrastructure bill, I know that sounds nuts, 
let's say we had a $10 trillion infrastructure bill with the way our economy works, that $10 trillion could be leveraged in the M2 uh, as it goes back in probably another 10 times to create $100 trillion. Now, if, if, if money is credit and if credit expansion is growth in both our economy uh, uh, and our GDP, then that should produce around $100 trillion in total GDP. Now, if that can happen over, say, a four or five year period, um, you know, we're, we're, we're actually getting back to normal and we've successfully kicked the can down the road. But I think that's what it's going to take. Do you have any trepidation just surrounding how powerful governments are as a result of this? Of course. I mean, the damage is done there. Like the fact that they can like shut down our businesses and tell us we have to stay home is a, is a little bit weird. I mean, I'm not fighting it. It's a power you of the purse I mean? thing too. I'm just, what I don't, what I really struggle with, and, and this is something I've, I've sort of been fearful for, for a, actually a number of years now, since I read a, a book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Dan Kahneman. And one of the, I think it was, I think that was the book. One of the things he talk, talks about in that is that you see uprisings from groups of people, not when they don't have freedom, but when they are given freedoms and they are taken away. And mm. I'm, I, I, again, going back to the, to the doomsday type thing, but I am curious at what point when we keep seeing week after week of multi-million job losses and we see these shelter-in-place things, we potentially see, see these coronaviruses leveling off, um, I'm just really curious to know what happens when the people say enough is enough. It's, and I don't know what that is um, or, or when that is. And I, I kind of made the joke of it yesterday when we were meeting saying, you know, and, and I, this, this is all because I was told by, um, by a pretty high-ranking uh, NCAA uh, official that should be prepared for the college football season to get canceled. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, kind of sounds whimsical to say, but, you know, in this country – it's all fun and games until you start messing with people's football, whether it's the NFL or whether it's college football <laughs> in the South or the Big Ten. You know, we're, we're in Arizona where we have terrible uh, collegiate football. But nonetheless, um, and, and for me, frankly, it makes me mad. You know, I'm, I'm a season ticket holder at, at Wisconsin. I go back for, for most of the games. We start getting rid of, <laughs> we, we start getting rid of, of these, these kind of Saturday traditions or these Sunday traditions, depending you know, if you're an NFL or a college fan. Where where does the line get drawn on these things for for people? Because I think you know the numbers show a lot of people in this country. Well, while they might respect the coronavirus, they don't respect the response to the coronavirus. And there has to be a point where where where, where the line gets drawn. So there's that. But but even more so, I'm just scared by the fact that the government could say, "Okay, you can't operate today," or, "Well, this economy's done." But guess what? We got some money over here. We're going to pump it into you. And once you've made that that step to be reliant on an entity like the government, it is very hard to pull that back. And and we've seen this over the years um, with, with with just different government programs, different government assistance programs. 
Um, and, and it's become a political weapon for a lot of people. You, you, make, you make certain people dependent on you, the government, for these things. You can't take that away, and effectively you guarantee their vote for life in doing it. But when you see the number of people that are impacted, you know, 23 million people in this country um, are impacted in the way of joblessness. A lot of people are impacted more, whether it's you've got a spouse that that lost a job or a loved one that lost a job or your salary is is taking a haircut or your business is, is struggling, and they realize how dependent they are on the government, I'm just really fearful that that paves the way for very reckless power at the government level. And yeah, this is, this is doomsday-ish to an extent. I get it. But what scares me at the, is that these things happen effectively in plain sight, and we don't realize until it's too late. And it seems that that's the route we're going down right now. Yeah, I don't disagree with it. And I think I think the reason that things have been relatively tame so far, although I, I did read about one protest, I just I didn't read the article, I just saw the, the headline about a protest in Michigan or something like that. People are protesting uh, uh, the the lockdown or whatever the governor's orders were. But I think I think the reason we have it is just a testament to the amount of wealth that our country possesses. You, you, you don't um, protest, although you might be frustrated when you have everything you need and you're taken care of. Uh, if we didn't have everything we need, if there wasn't, you know, obviously the shortages seem to have worked their, worked their ways out, that work, worked its way out, at least, um, at least here in Arizona. Um, and it seems like across the country, really, there's no, no shortages of toilet paper, produce, or meat anymore, any longer. doesn't appear to be. Uh, but the fact that everybody has what they need, they're not desperate. Uh, they don't, they don't, they don't, you know, rush into the streets to, to protest. Uh, but uh, that's not the case for every country all over the world. So I, I do expect more unrest. I don't know that it happens here. And, and I hope not, um, but I, d- I do think it depends on these next few weeks. And I, I know there's a push right now to start to get governors to loosen some of these restrictions, but I, d- I just don't know how you come back from 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 some of this when when the government has that much power over you. I I don't know, but oh yeah, the precedent the precedent that's been set the the damage there is done. That's for sure. No, I I totally agree with that. Like, precedent that's been set here next time there's a global pandemic it can shut down the entire economy well and so what's weird about this and i guess you know if you're looking to acquire political power this has been a master class because what you're able to say is well hey because of these these steps that we took you know the coronavirus could have been so much worse and so now it sets that precedent for every single time there's a threat our knee-jerk reaction is to do those things because we have no idea how bad coronavirus would have been. So it's not like we can say, well, coronavirus is this bad, but if we would have done this, or if or, you know, if we would have done this, it, was, it would have only been that bad. But we have no idea how bad it would have been. And so there's always that free reign to effectively get in front of it and take this overwhelming action. And pretty soon, the threshold for what requires that action is going to get lower and lower and lower and lower. Until we're just fully dependent on the government for everything. And we've seen that happen in history, and it doesn't end well. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't know. I mean, I think, 
I, I, the, well, I guess the, the, the damage is done. The potential for the issue is, is the precedence is, is set. Um, I don't expect abuse of that, but it could be right. I'm just, I'm just inherently distrustful of, of that type of power, but transitioning maybe to a happier subject. I, I don't know, maybe it's happier, maybe it's not, but where is the opportunity coming out of this? Um, we've kicked around the potentially it's manufacturing. Might be. Well, you know, probably need to know some things, but I'm not, do we even know enough to know where the opportunity is at this point? You know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know that we do. Um, you know, I was looking at, just looking into the last downturn, um, you know, obviously the things started getting rocky in 07, if you remember. I think Bear Stearns, uh, maybe it was early 08. Bear Stearns failed in early 08. Not failed, but, you know, was was bought uh, in early 08, uh, brokered by the Federal Reserve. And um, so everybody knew something was going on. They weren't expecting the contagion to spread. And then it wasn't until Lehman Brothers collapsed in late 08 when everything started really getting... Um, you know, the gyrations in the market were getting intoler intolerable. And, um, but the opportunities didn't really present themselves until, you know, 2009, 2010. Um, you know, that's when I started buying, um, buying, I bought a bunch of houses when the market crashed. And, um, you know, so it was, it was slow. I mean, that's why, that's why I think it's odd right now for people to think they're going to miss the upside opportunity in this one. Uh, I mean, I would like to, I guess I'm a little more conservative. I'd, I'd like to see bottom set. I'd like to see, you know, some, some movement upward, you know, with that said, I don't, I don't play the stock market um, all that much. You know, I like to buy dividend stocks here and there. Uh, mostly, most of my investments are, are in real estate and, um, you know, operating companies, but uh, nonetheless, you know, we're reluctant to, we've got a couple of acquisitions that we're looking at that, you know, we're reluctant to move forward on given, given where we're at in the cycle, you know, maybe everything clears up, but um, I, I think when, when an economy, when, I think when, when opportunities are, are, are present, it's obvious. It's not speculative. You understand what I'm saying when I say that? Yeah, it's, does that make sense? Yeah, and it's funny in a in a much different vein, but very related. You know, my wife and I, whenever we make decisions, we generally let's say whether it's moving somewhere, are we going to buy a house here, or you know, are we going to take you know this big trip, whatever it is? We sort of have this philosophy that the right things just sort of happen to the point it becomes a foregone conclusion. And right. I, which is kind of what you're saying, like it's it just becomes so black and white and so easy to see that that you do it. And I'm not sure there's anything that's just hitting us in the face right now that says, "Here you go." Yeah, yeah. When I started buying houses, it was it was this is a good deal. Um, this is a good deal, and if the market gets cut in half, I want to buy two more. Yeah, you know what I mean. It was. 
there was there was just lots and lots and lots of opportunity and 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 the value was there and and i think what it comes down to and maybe this is what i'm hung up on what it comes down to is i believe you invest in money machines uh not dreams of riches i think when you invest in dreams of riches you kind of get yourself in trouble you know but even even the cape ratio on on the s p 500 right now is like over 26. um you know that is that is not historically cheap now there's an argument to be made that it's elevated because interest rates are so low and borrowing costs are so low that it that you leverage up your your um you can leverage up and and have a, a higher return uh yes that makes sense but nonetheless over you know 150 year cycle in very few cases is, is it ever over 25 and those couple of cases include black black tuesday the dot-com crash and the 08 crash and we're still we're still up um uh we're still up over 26. yeah that that, that does concern me and i'm involved in equities a little bit I guess more than you are. At least I'm, I'm more actively focused on it, and I am curious. One, um, one about how much worse this is going to go. You know, we're we're seeing this rally right now, and you know, just looking looking right now at the Schiller ratio. You know, live it's at you know twenty six point four right now, which is really really strong. I mean, I know in the first of this year we were we were up above thirty. Generally speaking, once you get above maybe twenty three, twenty four historically, it's not good. Although the last few years have been a little bit of an anomaly there, but I, I just feel like we haven't understood the impact of this enough and we haven't can, we haven't seen enough of the the jobless claims roll in to to see this market hit a bottom which I guess gets us back to your earlier point that is this is this all coronavirus or was this an excuse because you know we heard it even at the beginning of the year before coronavirus was a term we all knew is oh the, you know is the market getting to a high but people have been saying that for six years now and it just became this thing where I think people finally needed something to to shake them enough to justify selling off because we were all afraid of leaving stuff on the table. But this has right. to spur a return to value investing. It, it, it has to. It has to get us back to looking at companies and investing in the company because of the balance sheet, because of the cash flow, and because of how we think it's going to perform in the future, not because oh, that's been a good stock, or it's a little off its 52-week high, or chart trading, all, all these types of things, I, I think are going to get us in trouble. And you know, right now, right now, God bless Amazon. Amazon's got a healthy balance sheet, and you know where it's positioned in the, the world economy right now is, is it's still a great stock despite the last, last couple weeks. But we have to be able to reframe how we how we ultimately invest in equities. You know, it, we need to invest in equities the way you would buy an apartment building or we would buy a business. We have to look at it and say, is this going to be something that is going to be strong and delivering us a return? Not looking at it and saying, where is it priced? Do we think that the stock is going to go up or down? Well, that, that is a completely meaningless way right. to, well, to look well, at it. Well, and I think, I think there's a lot of people out there, and, and maybe this is a testament to the way to where valuations are, you know, uh, in that in that Cape ratio, um, Schiller ratio, and in you know even <clears throat> in the elevated real estate returns, the elevated bond market, it's, it's sort of a question of where do you put your money? And frankly, over the last twelve years since the the you know Great Recession, 
you know, let's think about what all this stimulus has done, right? So, so the Fed's bought bonds. Uh, so who owns bonds? Well, wealthy people own bonds. Those, uh, the, 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 the bonds, uh, uh, that's pushed, that's pushed folks out on the risk spectrum to start buying corporate debt. Uh, corporate debt finances buybacks. Uh, who well, who owns who owns the shares of the company? Well, mostly extremely wealthy people um, own that. Uh, you know, buying bonds in both cases, pushing people out on the risk spectrum. Uh, well, that reduces borrowing costs uh, in real estate. Well, who who owns real estate? Well, homeowners own homes, but like frankly, the majority of of commercial real estate is owned by wealthy accredited investors. Mm -hmm. And so all of this money has accrued to uh, the the higher end, uh, the higher uh, high net worth demographic, um, you know, which, which, which isn't a bad thing um, necessarily, uh, but it's, it's caused, I think it's caused, a, we're trying to figure out where to put the money. Right, so it's caused in quote unquote inflation in the asset prices of these assets, and it's caused accumulation of large uh, uh, amounts of cash on various balance sheets that we discussed earlier, and that's actually caused the velocity of money to decline even. So what I'm hoping that they can figure out in this next turn is is how to to get that money frankly into the hands of the people so that the people can uh, uh, buy the products and the companies can compete uh, for those dollars i think that would create a healthier economy although a manipulated economy uh, but in any case if you're going to have a manipulated economy which we already do um, uh, you know, the one that's a little more even and not just accruing to asset holders, the wealth accruing to, to continuously accruing to asset holders could help stabilize some of that concern that you have uh, for, you know, revolt or revolution. Um, uh, you know, as people, as people's wealth gets, gets inflated away. Uh, I don't know how they do that short of direct payments. Um, you know, we just did that through the stimulus package, but I don't know how sustainable that is or how much of that you can actually do. Uh, so anyway. I mean, I'm looking at this right now. You know, headline in the Wall Street Journal, 5.2 million Americans filed unemployment benefits this week. Market up 33 for the day. It's like, well, I, so are we just saying that we've totally priced in the impact of coronavirus already? Well, have you ever seen that chart? It's really interesting. I'll have to send it to you. It shows it's uh, it's this concept called FOMC drift, the Federal Open Market Committee drift, and it shows basically the return, um, the accumulated return of the S&P 500 on the day before, the day of, and the day after an FOMC announcement against the accumulated return of the S&P 500 on every other day, excluding those three days, uh, when those announcements occur, day before, day up and day after. So it takes all those out. And what's interesting is it is flatlined if you take those day out, days out and it is to the sky. 
you put those days, uh, if you only calculate those days. And I think what that highlights is that we're in a highly financialized world. We're all very dependent on whether or not the Federal Reserve is going to create more dollars or not. If they're going to create more dollars, the returns are good, and they've created a lot of dollars. If they're not going to create more dollars, the returns are bad, um, and it's going to and it's going to impact us heavily. I mean, you saw that they they tried to taper a little bit uh, in 2019, late to eight, late mm-hmm. 18, uh, 2019, and and what happened? Issues in the repo market, right? So issues in the repo market. All of a sudden, oh wait, we have to support the repo market. Uh, no big deal. Don't look over here. Five hundred billion dollars to start supporting the repo market. Uh, that stabilized things for a little bit until the coronavirus hit. I, 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 I do feel that 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 there's there certainly something about uh, the coronavirus that that is hurting the market. But I, I just I I keep coming back to this idea that it was really just an excuse for a lot of people. It, it, it just, it had to be an excuse to sell off because we were getting unhealthy in a lot of different aspects of this. But when I just, again, I'm just, I'm shocked. We, at what point do we see 5.2 million new jobless claims lead to the market going up? I, I, I just, I don't understand where people are at. And I, I'm in the, the camp right now where, well, I'm not necessarily going to sell off because I, I take more of a long-term view to, to the market. I think this thing has to go down to 18 or 19 again. You know, it's at what 23 and a half right now. There there's just there there's no way that that we can do this. And you know to your earlier point ta- talking about that chart, there's a similar chart where if you look at um if you look at the market, I think it's over like the last 30 years, and if you want to capture any upside of the market, you have to be invested on the 10 or 20 biggest trading days. Yet um, those biggest trading days happen within 10 or 20, um, or within a few days, I should say, of the 10 or 20 uh, biggest losing days. And so as a result, you know, to one, one of these big pieces of advice I, I, I captured was um, ride stuff out. Just, you know, keep, keep investing, making your structured contributions into the fall. You know, you, you, can, you can cost average down a little bit, uh, but you have to be there for the big days to have any ability to capture the upside of the return. And that's sort of a scary proposition, but just going back to that earlier point, it has to get us back just to investing in companies that we think have long-term value to deliver and not just looking at the market as effectively a blackjack table or a roulette wheel, which I think a lot of people do. And in bull markets especially, it becomes a little bit contagious and we get out of control doing that. Right. So I think we've beat that topic up pretty good. How have you guys adapted to life at home? What's, what's fundamentally different? How are you surviving these, these restrictions? Um, we are surviving these restrictions. I mean, we're trying to create good habits. Uh, so my wife and I, uh, after we get up every morning, uh, we'll go for a walk, uh, about three miles. Um, so that's been, that's been enjoyable. And then I think, you know, as you know, you know, I come home to, to do our daily stand-up calls. Those have been really effective. Uh, they've, been, they've been great. I've been spending a ton of time t- trying to understand what's going on uh, in the market and what the outlook for the economy is going to look like uh, coming forward. 
you know, obviously my kids are, you know, everybody's home from school. School is canceled uh, in Arizona through the rest of the year, um, although they are doing um, online classes. And we're navigating that, trying to trying to find a good pattern to not strangle our children. Um, we, have, we have four kids, and uh, you know, my wife uh, she runs a health coaching business, so she's you know, fortunately, hers hasn't really been impacted because you know all that all that she does is really over the phone and online anyway. So um, I think we've navigated pretty well. Uh, my wine consumption has been a little too high. Um, and so that's caused my, my grocery bill to increase. Most of my other bills have decreased, but my grocery bills increased because my wine consumption is high. <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, it's kind of nice. I mean, to, to just a different change of pace and to be a bit more thoughtful about the things that we're doing and reflective of what's going on in the world. Uh, I thrive there. How about you guys? I like the things we're doing. I just don't like being forced to do them. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Um I I do think that to your point the the habits have changed. You know, two things I've seen that have been really nice is you know, for us and we have 3-year-olds so I um we're actually lucky because um you know, we don't have to do a homeschooling curriculum like like a lot of other parents are are being stuck with right now. So not only are they trying to juggle their jobs and working at home, they also have a homeschooling curriculum that they have to work through. That's that's very challenging. So I I recognize the luxury that we have, but our boys typically go to school from 7.30 to 5.30, or I should say preschool. Um, it's more like a camp. They have, they have a load of fun there. Um, and for us, what's been different is we ha- we're able to have uh, somebody come help us watch the boys so my wife and I can work during the day. Um, and my wife is in uh, healthcare, and specifically healthcare technology. And so with everything transitioning to telehealth, I've barely seen her uh, during the last month or so. But what we do is every morning... We uh, we get the guys up at probably I don't know six thirty. Generally, they're up and you know I'm running into their room because they love jujitsu, and so I'm trying to keep something catastrophic from happening. But once we get them up, you know we've realized they're kind of like puppies. We got to tire them out early, and so we live very close to one of the canals in Phoenix. And the, the canals in Phoenix, um, you know, they have dirt, uh, big dirt paths on each side. When I say dirt paths, it's like you know three or four. Uh, widths of a car, car lanes wide. So um, what we do is we take the boys out there and we use the telephone poles, which are probably 30, 40, I'm going to say 30 yards apart, maybe 40 yards apart. And we effectively run like a four mile relay race with them from telephone pole to telephone pole every morning. And so we've got, we've got the stroller, we had our, you know, our giant side-by-side bus of a stroller. And my wife and I will push the stroller. One of them hops out at the telephone pole. The other one hops in and they run as fast as they can to that one. And then we do that back and forth for about four miles, get them good and tired. And then we hit a coffee shop, um, get a little banana bread, get a cappuccino, and come back and usually get back right uh, right for that 9 o'clock call that we have to start our day off, which has been really wonderful. And then at that point, you get into a little bit of a rhythm of the day. I do really miss being in the office just because um, – as much as I miss actual closed door offices, one of the things that's fun about our office is because, you know, we have your typical, um, almost looks like a hedge fund office, you know, with, you know, desks and everything wide open. We have a lot of great debates, and I can only imagine what the debates would have been like on a daily basis as we're dealing with this you know, incredibly unprecedented event. But um, 
the other thing that's been nice is every night we um, we do we do sort of the same thing. At about five o'clock, my wife and I open a beer, and uh, we throw baseballs to the boys in the backyard, and then uh, we have dinner together, and that's pretty much that for for the day. The only thing we're really missing uh, is live sports. That is that's been tough to live without. You know, whether it's not whether it's having well, not obviously not college football now, but missing uh, the NHL and Blackhawks games. You know, there's a lot of hockey watched in our house. Those things going away have been tough, but other than that, it's it's been a really nice routine. And what's even nicer is that during the day, um, I will I can hop downstairs from my office, and if the guys are having lunch, I can sit down and eat with them. Or you know, I'm trying to make it a point once a week, just because it's a twin thing. Once a week, I'm I'm trying to take one of them uh, out to lunch. So on like Tuesday, I'll take one out, you know, get something to eat, and then on Thursday, I'll take the other out. And obviously, we can't eat at the restaurant, so we grab it to go and we go sit outside somewhere and. Just the frequency of interaction with my kids has been wonderful. Because before it was, you drop them off at school, and then they come home, and we like we try to pack all of this stuff into into the night. Now it's we're just living a little slower, and I'm able to see them a lot more, and just kind of do fly by here and there, check on them, see how they're doing. That's been that's been a lot of fun. But I am excited to get things back to, well, there's no normalcy like we've discussed, but just get back to a different type of routine again. But I think a lot of things change. I think I think restaurants are not going to see the same traffic. I think a lot more people are realizing, hey, we can eat at home, we can cook as a family, and this is a lot of fun. Um, and I also think some of the the opulence is going to change. So we have, um, and I think I can say his name on the show, I don't think he'd mind. So like, um, we're good friends with, uh, with our friend James. And um, you know, we go out to dinner with James and his wife a lot, and we'll go to really nice dinners with them and things like that. But the other day, we hopped on our beach cruisers. We all rode together, uh, our family and, and their family. We rode over to a brewery, and we got food to go, and we literally, we just went Wisconsin-style. We sat in the parking lot while our kids played tag, and we drank beers and, and had burgers. It was a very low-key meal, and it was absolutely wonderful. I think we're going to start to reframe these things. And so for us, quarantine life has actually been been really nice. We're also lucky because we're in Arizona and we can be outside. You know, if you're in Fargo, North Dakota right, right now, quarantine life sucks. Right. So, Man, it sounds like you guys got it down. We're, we're having fun. You know, it's, it's been tough on Joy just because... Yeah, she's got. Well, I think, I'm, I'm making this up. I want to say they have 26 clinics or so for, um, and and she's a she's a CTO, um, for for a health company. And so transitioning 26 clinics to doing in person appointments or from doing in person appointments to doing them all online, in the span of like three days, I think was probably a little bit challenging. But outside of that, uh, and you and me trying to keep keep our stores open, outside of that stress. This has been a, a tremendous blessing in disguise. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I would agree with that. So we're adjusting. But, you know, one thing routine-wise that I'm looking forward to is us just starting to do this on a, on a more regular cadence. This was something I'd missed for the last year. And I sort of made the decision to pull back just because we were going so gung-ho with the car wash business and, and all these other things we're looking at. But taking this time, whether it's an hour or two a week, just, just for us to chat through things that are going on um, and, and share that with people, I think is a, is a really good thing. And I'm excited for us to start doing it a little bit more. Yeah, that's right. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, where do they find you? 
Oh, I'm all over the place. Um, uh, I'm on Instagram, Timothy Barrett. I'm on, um, let's see, I'm on Twitter. Twitter's probably better. At Tim Barrett DM. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. There's probably a bunch of Timothy Barrett's on LinkedIn. But I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm all over the place. Well, I don't know if it's up yet, but you just told me that you acquired the URL timblog.com. Timsblog.com. Timsblog. I'm working on that. Timsblog.com. Yeah, that's so eventually and very soon, uh, hopefully I'll be able to uh, actually say you can go to timsblog.com and have all my uh, social there. Well, that, that will be good. You can find me on LinkedIn, just like Tim. Uh, I am newly returned to Instagram which I sort of fought, but uh, Mr. Chris book on Instagram. And then uh, we will have all kinds of things posted on leadingbythebook.com. We're, we're going to change that name, though. I'm not, not terribly... I like leading by the book. Well, then it's going to become leading by the book with Tim Barrett. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't like the overwhelming presence of, of my name and my name alone on that. But uh, we'll, we'll keep stuff up there. Um, that definitely content as it relates to the show and things like that. But uh, always love to hear from you guys. Questions, whatever it is, drop us a line, and we'll make sure to address them. But uh, this yeah, has been a fun return. Our thoughts, too. Tell us where we're wrong. Tell us what we're missing, what we're not clear about. It's uh, part of this process, for me at least, is just it it helps me to say out loud the things that I'm thinking so that so that those thoughts become clear. You know, or the, get corrected. Yeah, the last thing we can do right now is shut ourselves off to new information. And you know, the problem I have with with social media and specifically Twitter is it's so easy to surround ourselves with people that agree with us and to vilify people that don't. And I look at this and I think, what is the worst that can happen if I see something that I that I think I disagree with. It's either going to be really truthful or resonate with me and I'm going to change my opinion, which is good because I don't want to be right. I want the truth. Or it's it's going to say, you know what? You're probably right in the way you're thinking, but it doesn't threaten me. And I want to make sure that we're always challenged in our thoughts because there's a good chance we're wrong. But at the very least, if we're not wrong, it's it's going to show us why we're right. I don't understand why we're so so predisposed to want to insulate ourselves with things that just tell us that we're right. I think that's a scary proposition. Not, we just don't, I don't, I, th I think we've lost the skill of argument. Uh, you know, we we look at argument as if it's a negative thing. Uh, and, and, we, and, and it's a real skill that we, that I think is, is gone, um, has gone by the wayside, at least by most people. I mean, look, if you just come at something with a very simple framework of say, uh, look, I need to be open-minded because there's, there's parts about what I'm thinking that might be wrong and being wrong is okay. It's okay to be wrong. So have that perspective, but then also when you're approaching somebody that you think is wrong, try asking more questions because there's a possibility that you're wrong too. And then lastly, you can't convince somebody that they're an idiot, despite your best efforts. If you try <laughs> to start off with you're an idiot, you're not going to actually convince them that your way is the right way because no one thinks that they're an idiot. You, ha you actually have to engage with the, the, the ideas and, and the best way to do so is to ask questions. Yeah, that, that is a, a terribly, terribly valid point. So, <laughs> um, a little random there. I think that's all we got for today. Cool. This was fun. Yeah, we will uh, see all of you guys very, very soon.